Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we began a review of the prosecution's cross-examination of Dr. Stephen Simring, the key defense expert witness who offered evidence supporting the claim that the defendant is not guilty by reason of insanity. On today's installment, we conclude our look at Dr. Simring's testimony. That's all coming up right after the break. 
I remember being at my desk. I have to, yes. Did you ask him what those two or three images that he remembered about the incident were? I did. And I have an, a, a red X over that, which is my notation for meaning he could provide no further information. Uh, on that particular four sentences, I place the red X when I go through a statement, which means he could provide nothing else. So you did ask him and he responded he didn't remember what that meant? Correct. And that's, that's not in your report. I don't think I missed that, correct? I didn't have these 91 pages. I had 18,000 pages when I did my report. And I've already told you I did not read all 18,000 pages. I, I'm, I'm sorry, doctor. That maybe I wasn't clear. You didn't indicate in your report that you asked him the question specifically about the two or three things that he remembered that were blurry and he couldn't remember. Correct. You would agree with me that a person who is feigning amnesia may spontaneously confess to something? Anything can happen. If the word you're saying is may, anything may happen. And I'm specifically referencing in the DSM where it talks about feigning amnesia. Doesn't it indicate that an individual who's feigning amnesia may spontaneously confess? Sure, that can happen. And these statements that Mr. Barrison wrote that you indicated you relied on, were you with him when he wrote those? I was not. Do you recall approximately when you asked for those to be written? Um, it was sometime after my last interview in April of 2020 when I, I told uh, Mr. Belinkus that I had so much material that I insisted that he ask his client to prepare a digest for me. So you asked him to write those after your last interview with him? Correct. And I said no more than 100 pages. And when he protested, I said no more than 100 pages. If there's anything more than 100 pages, I'm not going to read it. Do you recall approximately when those 91 pages were produced to you? Uh, sometime after my last interview in uh, April of 2020. And you just indicated that after you got those, uh, you reviewed them? Yes. And you indicated that at least with respect to the comment about two to three images that were blurry, in his mind, you asked him about those and he didn't remember. Them. All I have is an X here. I, un I underlined many things. I do that when I, in red, when I do an interview, I had an X here, which meant he gave me no further information. So you interviewed him or examined him again after that last meeting of April that's listed in your report? That's a good question. I did not. Uh, I did not. I might have put that together with some of the original material that he submitted. So it's possible you didn't ask him about the two to three parts of the event that he did remember, even if they were. It's certainly possible, yes. Uh, doctor, moving on to your diagnosis, specifically the diagnosis for delusional disorder. I think you indicated that a delusion is a false belief. Yes, a false belief, not based on simple ignorance, not held by any particular culture or subculture, and not amenable to reasonable change. Did you define the term delusion in your report at all? Probably I did. Starts with false belief, but with those with those caveats. Yes, on page 18 of my report, this is in the summary section, where I wrote, delusional disorder is a relatively uncommon but severe psychiatric illness. The disorder involves psychotic thinking and a break with reality. That's the same thing, psychotic thinking and a break with reality. Delusional disorder is related to schizophrenia, which is a much more common condition. In schizophrenia, the individual displays a wide range of serious symptoms, including hallucinations, agitation, disordered thought process, and delusions. <clears throat> However, <clears throat> I'm adding, 
in delusional disorder, the major symptoms involve delusions, not these other things. So in schizophrenia, you have a grab bag full of serious symptoms. In delusional disorder, you just have the delusions. So it's a part of schizophrenia. Now you, well, you I'm, not, I'm not finished. Well, uh, my question was therefore, what, and, and doctor, my question was just whether you defined it, and I think you did answer that. So well, I haven't finished the definition. I didn't ask you to define it. I asked you if you did define it. Yes, and I was reading you my definition. Okay, I didn't ask for that. Okay. Thank you, doctor. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Prosecutor Shellhorn continues his questioning of Dr. Simring by asking the witness to specify what he assessed as the defendant's delusion. What in particular is Michael Barrison's specific delusion? Uh, that uh, Lauren Canterac is bound and determined to destroy him and kill him. When did that delusion start? I can't say exactly. Probably in the summer of 2019. And what specific evidence do you rely on to show that that was the onset of the delusion that Lauren Canterac was, I don't want to paraphrase, I'm sorry, I didn't get the exact words you used. Well, the posts and his deteriorating mental state and their deteriorating relationship. So potentially the posts that Michael Barrison told you about when you met with him. Correct. Some of which we've established he didn't have before the shooting. Judge, one, not some. Yeah, you addressed one. Well, I only addressed one, Judge. Right, well, Do you have but if you, ha if you have others, then you can address them, but you only addressed one. I didn't go through them all on the break to be candid, Judge. Well, I understand. But what you did go through, what's on the record is one. So, Doctor, my question was, you indicated that you based your opinion about the onset of the delusions and the delusional diagnosis on the existence of these social media or Facebook posts. Well, yes, on the deteriorating relationship between Canarac and Barrison, the things they were saying to each other, and particularly and primarily on these posts and texts. And you didn't indicate in your report specifically when you determined the onset of the delusion? I think I mentioned in the report that it started somewhere in 2019. I think after she returned from the farm in Florida and moved back to the farm in New Jersey. They had had normal problems before that time, he said, normal landlord-tenant type problems. But after she returned, things took a decided turn for the worse. So if I'm reading your report right, are you talking about on page 16? where you indicate Mr. Barrison's relationship with Lauren Kenrick and her family began to quickly deteriorate in the spring of 2019? Correct. So you wrote that there because you determined that the delusions began then? Well, they, they never begin at one particular time. Delusions develop. And if you look at the history of a delusion and you go backward in time, what you'll usually find are suspicions and distrust and feelings about bad will. These are all within the normal intercourse between people. But then they get more out of hand and the ideas become less and less plausible. 
and more and more eccentric and more and more idiosyncratic. I think that by the time spring of 2019, Laura Cataract started saying things which were unmoored from reality, unmoored from what was actually happening. And Michael Barrison was more and more believing the things that she was saying. And you'd agree with me that the criteria or symptom for delusional disorder would be that the delusion has existed for a period of one month or longer. Correct. And so you, you, what you're saying today is even though you didn't determine specifically whether it was before a month before the shooting, that, that's your opinion that it did exist. Before. Yes, it's somewhere in the spring of 2019. It's very hard to put a specific date on it. But the reason the DSM puts that proviso in is it's to rule out an instance where somebody suddenly claims that all of a sudden today I became delusional about you. That's not the way the disorder happens. It percolates and develops over time. So this is a very typical development of a delusional disorder over time. Doctor, you testified on direct examination that Mr. Barrison was depressed and preoccupied with Ms. Kenrick. Correct. And you based that in part on review of the various Facebook posts and, and social media posts that he told you that he was reviewing? Well, that statements by other witnesses, Ms. Picardo, Mr. Uh, uh, Tarshis, Mary Gray Haskins, Ruth Cox, some of the young people on the farm, Justin Harden, I can't name all of them, but there were a lot of people who were interviewed who were seeing the same thing and felt helpless to do anything about it. Everybody seemed to see a train wreck coming but nobody seemed to know what to do about it. And they were all uh, preoccupied with what was going on here between themselves and, and Ms. Cannery. Oh, not the way he was. They were concerned. That's small potatoes. They were concerned. I'm concerned about a lot of things. I'm sure you're concerned about a lot of things. That's not the same as preoccupied. Preoccupied is having a thought in your head that you cannot get out of your head no matter what. That's a delusion. So if, if the, some of those witnesses, let's say, had testified that they were terrified, or that they were scared, or that they were preoccupied with everything going on. Does that mean they were delusional too? No, it depends. They were certainly preoccupied and frightened because the farm was falling apart. This is their place of residence and their place of, of employment, and they were all dedicated very, uh, very strongly to a sport in which they shared a common love. And they also shared a great deal of affection for Michael Barrison. That came out. They saw everything unraveling in front of their eyes and felt helpless to do anything about it. This had to do with Mary Haskins Gray and Ruth Cox, and I think that's one of the reasons Ruth Cox came to visit, I don't remember exactly. Had to do with Stephen Tarshish, had to do with Justin Harden. People saw from their point of view that things were going very badly and they did not know how to intervene. Now you didn't review all of their statements. Counselor, I would still be in my office today if I were reviewing every one of the statements. I took what I thought was a fair sampling. So if somebody said something different than what you just testified to, that could affect your opinion? It has to do with the overall thing. If one kid on the farm said, gee, things look pretty happy, that's not going to change the overwhelming weight of evidence. What if, the, all of the, what if all of the people felt the same way and expressed their concerns the same way that Michael Barrison did? Well, if You're everybody saying that their, that their own fears or their preoccupations were somehow less than Michael Barrison. Well, it's, it's this is sort of a hypothetical thing, but if you're saying if if 
if uh, Justin Harden said, I felt personally threatened that she was going to kill me, if Stephen Tarsha's attorney said, I was personally threatened that she was going to kill me, well, that might be different. But nobody said anything like that. They were concerned about Barisola's welfare. There wasn't anybody else there that felt personally and directly threatened by Canarac and Goodwin. Based on your review of what you did review. That's all I have. Well, you were given everything, correct? I was given more than everything. You had access to everything. And you chose... God help me, yes. I had access to 18,000 pages. And it isn't just the question of reading 18,000 pages and writing a bill for 18,000 pages. I'm not going to do that. It's not necessary. In doing a review of medical records, it's not necessary to do each one. Things become very duplicative. And after a point, especially when you're experienced in reading records, as I think I am, a pattern emerges. Now, that doesn't mean that on Tuesday, one day... Somebody said things look pretty good. That wouldn't change anything. The overall picture was clear. People on the farm were concerned about the welfare of Michael Barrison. They saw the man they really cared for deteriorating, but they were not concerned about their personal safety. It was only Barrison who was afraid that Lauren Canarac was going to kill him. He was the only one that was afraid. Correct. That he was going to be killed by Canarac. At this point, Judge Stephen Taylor interrupts the questioning and calls a lunch break in the proceedings. After the break, Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn resumes his questioning of Dr. Stephen Simring. I think we left off uh, before the lunch break. I was going to ask you some questions about your testimony on direct examination related to guns. And I think you had indicated on direct examination that you were aware from Mr. Barrison telling you that there were certain posts or, or social media references to Lauren Canterac owning guns. Yes. And he told you that he was aware of that before the shooting. Yes. And I think you had indicated that that was part of what you relied on in rendering your opinion or forming your opinion that he was delusional at the time of the shooting. That he believed a lot of this. And all this led into delusional thinking. Now, you were aware from your review of the discovery that Mr. Barrison had called 911 on a number of occasions leading up to the day of the shooting? Yes, at least four occasions. Did you listen to any of those 911 recordings? I did. Do you recall on the July 31st 911 call uh, when he was asked whether any weapons were involved or mentioned and his response was no? That's correct. And you recall on August 1st when he called 911 he was asked if weapons were involved or mentioned, and his response was no. I believe that, as I recall, that was true. And on August 3rd, do you recall that he called 911 and was asked if weapons were involved or mentioned, and his response was, I have not heard a word of that? Something like that, yes. Those are standard questions, and I believe he answered in the negative. And lastly, uh, on August 5th, on the call, he was asked if weapons were involved or mentioned, and his response was, not so far. That's correct. Not so far. That's correct. Now, doctor, I think you testified earlier today that the gun that was recovered uh, after the shooting was Ruth Cox's gun. Correct. Do you recall in your report that you had said a number of times that you assumed it was Mary Haskins Gray's gun? If I did, it was a mistake. I think it was uh, Dr. Cox's gun. And I if, think. If, if you can refer to page nine of your report, specifically halfway down the page before the heading that says medical reports. Yes. Did you put in brackets there, I believe the gun was a pistol that belonged to Ms. Gray? I'm sorry, give me the reference, please. Yes, sir. It's uh, page nine, the last line oh. before the heading. Oh, I have medical. it. I think that was an error. I, I think that it belonged to Dr. Cox. And on page 14, did you indicate at the bottom of the page, in the last paragraph, 
he had in his possession a small pink pistol, which I believe came from Mary Haskins. Again, I think that was an error. I remembered clearly it was a pink pistol, not to be sexist about it, but it looked like a, quote, woman's pistol. And uh, it belonged to one of the women, and I must have had that mixed up when I dictated the report. I, I'm almost sure it came from uh, Dr. Cox. So we don't have to go through the exercise again. Would you agree with me on page 17 if it says, I'm not certain when he obtained the small pink pistol, which I believe was owned by Ms. Gray, that would be the same answer. Yeah, I think it was my error. I think it was Ms. Dr. Cox. Were you aware from your review of the discovery that there were multiple places where it was referenced as Ruth Cox's gun? I think so. You never asked Michael Barrison when he first obtained that gun, did you? Well, yes. Uh, he, he said that he obtained it. It had been locked up in a safe, as I recall, and he obtained it shortly before he went down to confront Lauren Canarac, where she was living, and he armed himself because he was frightened for his life. And he, as I recall, he removed it from his safe where it had been kept for safekeeping. Can you show me or tell me where in your report you put that? That. So your recollection is that you asked Michael Barrison when he first obtained the gun? Yes, I might be able to find it in my notes, not in the report, or it might be in the police report. I don't remember. Would you take my word for it that it's not in your report? Yes, I will. So your recollection is that at some point when you were interviewing Michael Barrison, he told you that he remembered getting the gun from the safe before he went to the house? Yes. And at least for purposes of your cross-examination, you agree with me that's not in your report? I, I'm not going to look through it and waste the jury's time. I'll accept your representation. Did you ask him when he first obtained the gun from Ruth Cox? From what I recall, she had come up from North Carolina to visit, and uh, she gave it to him for safekeeping, and he put it in his safe. Would you agree with me that that's not in your report either? No, that's not in the report. And as I recall, I don't know if it was a licensed weapon, and I think that for safekeeping, he put it in his safe. That's my best recollection of it. So your recollection from reviewing the discovery and speaking to Michael Barrison is that you knew that Ruth Cox had brought the gun with her from North Carolina, had given it to the defendant for safekeeping. He put it into his safe. He got it at some point before the shooting, before he went to the farmhouse. That's my best understanding, yes. And none of that is in your report? Correct. And you continually attributed the gun to Ms. Gray throughout the course of Well, that was an error. It was Dr. Cox's gun. No further questions, Judge. Judge Taylor invites defense attorney Edward Belenkis to follow up on the prosecution's cross-examination. Redirect. Doctor, uh, prosecutor asked you uh, questions on cross with regards to uh, where you got the uh, statement concerning sexual abuse allegations made to DCPMP, correct? Yes. Did you review the uh, safe sport complaint filed by Lauren Canerac? I never saw that complaint. I was aware of it through the police investigation, but I never saw the complaint. Prosecutor asked you questions about feigning. What is feigning? Feigning is faking. Did you consider whether or not my client was feigning based on your interviews with him and review of the discovery? Well, it's always a consideration in a forensic interview, especially when the stakes are high. And feigning or malingering, which is another form of feigning, can be done for any number of reasons. It could be done in a simple civil context where somebody feigns injuries to get a reward, say an insurance settlement or something like that. Or somebody can feign facts in a case to avoid criminal responsibility. So in ev evaluating anybody, feigning or malingering is something which is always a consideration. 
in your consideration of that, did you find any evidence based on everything that you did to indicate that Michael Barrison was feigning about not remembering the event? I, I hate the word any because any is like any. I don't know, maybe he twitched his left eye and that would be seen by some people as evidence. If you're asking me that I find any significant evidence that he was faking, the answer is no. Nothing further. Well, you may step down, doctor. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, Dr. Simring's testimony concludes, and we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we begin our look at the testimony of a second defense expert, psychologist Dr. Charles Hassan, who observed the defendant within three months of the shooting of Lauren Kanarek. If you'd like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.